the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everyone in between. Welcome to a stormy, summery England. Of course, it's stormy. The the uh, Wimbledon's on, and the cricket, and the cricket. Yes, the cricket and the tennis, and um, uh, it's all getting weird already. Uh, walked in, your dog appears to have stood on a wasp, and my car opened all its windows again. Yeah, it's James's bloody gremlin. Yep. So we've had. Uh... Um, the rest of the family are dealing with the dog incident. We're not quite sure what he's done, but we're trying to get him sorted out. Um, and yes, when then in the middle of all that, your windows open themselves. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Is it paranormal? Yeah. Did, did I sit on something? I don't know. Don't think I did, but yeah. And um, I don't know if we're sounding clearer, but we're certainly less, uh, what's the word, nervous about our equipment failing this week, aren't we, Ben? <laughs> We are. Thank you to our first Patreon, uh, Kate Purnell. We've already put your place to good use. We bought some new cables last week. We 20 minutes engineering um, our cables this week. We're straight in. And straight in and recording. Sounding better. Yes, yes exactly. Definitely, definitely. So thank you for that. We really appreciate that. And um, yeah, and if, uh, if anyone else fancies Patreoning, go to patreon.com forward slash tqmpod patreon.com forward slash tqm pod and we will have some uh, exclusive material on there coming soon we're going to be doing some filming i was uh, surprised to find out that we're getting a director to come and do some stuff I which know. is <laughs> very that's quite high end yeah. yeah yeah we'll keep you posted on that but um yes we'll be doing another field trip soon won't give you too much away but it's a really amazing spooky location and we're going to do some filming while we're there so very exciting but yeah. we'll keep you posted um well, should we get into the episode then, Ben? Yeah, I think so. I've got a sneaking suspicion I know what it's about, but I don't really know any details. Yeah, well, it's it's weird. I, I, I started researching this episode thinking I'd cover a number of stories, but the more I delved into one, I just thought, no, I'm going to stick with this one because it, it's an incredible story. And it, I guess the episode came about because we've debated ghosts and what they might be many times on the podcast, haven't we, Ben? Yeah. You know, are they glitches in the matrix of our simulated reality? Are they entities from a parallel universe or alien or demonic entities? Or could they be the souls of the dead? But whenever we do debate it, we always kind of come back to the same question, really. Why? <laughs> what's the point? What's the purpose? Yeah, yeah, yes, quite, <laughs> yes. Yeah, what is a ghost for? yeah. I guess the best evidence that they are souls of the dead returned is the many examples of people being revisited by their loved ones after they've passed away. But I guess a sceptic would discount those as psychological rather than paranormal experiences, a way of coping with loss and grief. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. And that got me thinking, because there are examples of ghost encounters that are harder to explain Ones where the ghosts seem to come back with a purpose, to right a wrong. Oh, that's the, um, uh, that's a very Victorian trope, but, um, but you've got a real case, right? I've got uh, not only a real case, an incredibly fascinating one. It's a really important case that many say proves that ghosts are really the dead returned. Certainly this case convinced a jury because through the mediumship of their mother a ghost testified in court to help convict their murderer. Wow. Yes, it's the incredible case of West Virginia's Green Brea ghost. Now, this story first appeared in the New York Sunday American in 1910. The original story was put together using court records from West Virginia and newspaper reports at the time. Now, some... that This story... If you Google there, you can see that you'll find you'll come across this story, the Green Beer Ghost. But some of the later versions of the story seem to include, let's let's say, some embellishments. <laughs> so I'm going to try and stick with earlier versions of the story from those court records, newspaper interviews at the time, um, and uh, a brilliant summary of the whole case by somebody called David Sibray, who's the editor in chief at the West Virginia Explorer magazine. Um, so there are three main protagonists in this strange case. 
The first is Zona Shu, who in the late 1890s was found dead at her home. Did she used to own Shoe Zone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There could be many a shoe gag coming up. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, for those interested, it's Shoe S H U E. But I, I'm assuming that's Shoe. Yeah, 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 yeah. The second protagonist in this story is Zona's husband, Edward Shoe. And finally, Zona's mother, Mary J. Heaster, who would be the chief witness in the conviction of Edward Shoe for his wife's murder. This is no ordinary murder case, however, as Edward Shoe would be convicted predominantly on the evidence of his mother-in-law, Mary Heaster. Now, Mary didn't see the murder of her daughter. She was many miles away at the time. Nor did Mary Heaster force a confession out of her son-in-law. No, Mary Heaster claimed that her dead daughter visited her as a ghost to explain who murdered her and how it happened. So, um, do we know how visited? Like, an apparition or...? Yeah, we'll get on to that, because oh, that, okay. that's fascinating um, and the right question to ask. And it, I mean, in the end, Mary Heaster's testimony of the communication she had with the ghost of her daughter would convict Edward Shue of murder. So let's back up a bit. This, this case really starts, obviously, with the death of Zona Shue. Now, initially, there was nothing suspicious about the death. Doctors in front of witnesses tried to revive Zona, but to no avail. And Zona's shoe was pronounced dead of natural causes, and that seemed like the end of it all. Until, in the weeks after Zona's death, her mother began having a series of strange supernatural dreams. The records show that Mary Heaster, mother of the deceased, had four dreams in total, In each one, her daughter would rise from the grave and tell her mother how she was murdered and by whom, the culprit being her husband, Edward Shue. We're going to go into the dreams in a little bit more and uh, in a little while, we actually have court transcripts of the testimony of Mary Heaster uh, when she was being interviewed by... Uh, Edward Shue's lawyer at the trial, which is fascinating in itself. So, Mary Heaster had these dreams. Initially, neighbours and the authorities put these claims down to shock and loss of the death of her daughter. But Mary Heaster insisted she was communicating with the actual ghost of her daughter and would not be silenced. Mary lived... There's basically a mountain uh, where where this all takes place. Mary Heaster, the mother-in-law, lived on one side of the mountain. Edward Shue and his wife Zona lived on the other side. I think there's about kind of a 14-mile difference, so they didn't live in, in the same area. And, you know, you'd say 14 miles now, it doesn't seem that long, but back in the late 1800s with the mountain in between, 14 miles is, you know, yeah, might, yeah. it could be 400, right? Yeah, very much, yeah. Well, word spread to the neighbourhood where Edward Shue, the local blacksmith, and his wife had lived... Edward Shue's neighbours began to come forward to tell of Edward's strange behaviour before and after his wife's death. So immediately after his wife's body was found, up to the date of her burial, Shue acted very strangely. When the doctors arrived on the day of his wife's death, Edward was holding her head against his chest, crying and seemingly hoping for some kind of life to return to the lifeless body of his wife. Later evidence suggested after her death, before the doctors arrived, Shue had moved the body and redressed his wife in a high-necked gown. Oh, that is suspicious. There was also, I'm not going to go into too much detail about it, but there was also a, a local young lad who would often do some work at the house and on the day of the death... Edward Shue kept going to his house and saying, can you go and see if my wife needs any help around the house? And the young lad was like, yeah, I can go later, but I'm busy now. But Edward Shue kept insisting and insisting that this kid go there. So there's something about that. But anyway, so so you've got Edward Shue holding his wife's, dead wife's uh, head in this high gown, uh, which meant that the doctors did not examine Zona Shue's head or neck. 
Now, one could explain this as the actions of a grief-stricken husband in a moment of shock. However, this odd behaviour continued right up until the burial. When relatives and neighbours would come to view the body of his wife, Edward refused to leave them alone and positioned himself right by the head of his dead wife's coffin. So, should we delve deeper into the dreams of Mary Heaster and these, these kind of apparitions yeah. that yeah, happened definitely. to her? So, several days after the funeral, Mrs Heaster was awakened from her slumber by, the noise, by a noise in her little cabin room. Startled, she recalled constant prayers since the daughter's death, seeking the real solution to it. Maybe they were about to be answered. Peering through the darkened room, Mrs Heaster made out an object. It was her daughter, dressed in the very dress she had died in. The young girl seemed about to speak, but when her mother reached out her hand, the girl disappeared. The next night, Mrs Heaster resumed her prayers, praying long and earnestly that her daughter would return to explain her death. Once more, her prayers were answered. The ghost of Zona Shoe talked more freely this time, giving her mother to understand she should be acquainted with the whole mysterious affair. A third visit was followed by a fourth before the murdered woman told her mother the entire circumstances surrounding her death. So this isn't a dream, this is actually a visitation. Yes, I think we'll, we'll get onto it in the court case. It, there's, there's some really interesting uh, positioning and politics involved in this case. So the, the prosecutors were really nervous about describing this as a visitation. Yeah, I can understand. So it gets alluded to as a dream. Um, but there, there is, uh, when I get onto that bit, I'll explain. There was some really clever work done by the prosecutors, almost letting the defence do their work for them. So when the prosecution presented their case, they, they didn't make much fuss about these kind of, well, kind of dreams, incidents. They didn't really go into detail. They left it to the defence to have that debate. And you'll see when we get onto the transcripts, you know, it, it, it was a great strategy that really worked. Mary Heaster insisted they weren't dreams, but I think it was slightly positioned as a dream because maybe that was more palatable to people than an actual apparition. I see, I see. Securing her knowledge that her son-in-law was a murderer, Mrs Heaster set out to trap him. First, it was not easy. Neighbours listened a little sadly to the unusual story, but merely shook their heads. Authorities offered little additional comfort. You can imagine, can't you, if you're the mother going, yeah. I've, I've been visited by a ghost who told me how the mur she's been murdered and how it happened. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's sort of the plot of Wuthering Heights so far. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? So several days later, Johnson Heaster, so that's Mary's brother-in-law, satisfied that the story had some foundation to it, went over the mountain to Livesey Mill to talk to Mr Shoe. Their conversation further aroused his suspicions. Then, after talking with Anderson Jones and others who'd been present at the house where his niece's body was found, the uncle was convinced the girl was a victim of foul play. So he took the word of his uh, his sister-in-law but wasn't completely believing it and then went over to the house to do his own investigations and his suspicions were, were aroused, let's say. So together, Mr Heaster and his sister-in-law went to Lewisburg for a conference with prosecuting attorney John A. Preston, who was one of the most brilliant lawyers of his day. Mary Heaster had claimed that her daughter's ghost had told her she was murdered by her husband. She had also told her that her husband did this by breaking her neck. Now, this seemed to tally with the description of Edward trying to prevent anyone going near his dead wife's head or neck, right? Yeah, but also, like, surely that's an easy thing for a doctor to diagnose. Yeah, you would think. There, we will get on to that because, right. because it, yeah, there was something about that. It, my, that was my first thought. It would be pretty obvious, but apparently not. Now, whether Miss Mary Heaster had been given this information by a ghost of her daughter or she had just inadvertently cottoned on to some kind of crime we'll never know but we do know her description of the ghostly encounter did lead to the arrest of Edward Shoe and her testimony led to the conviction of Edward Shoe for first degree murder of his wife 
Further the shoes on the other foot. <laughs> Sorry, I've been, well, I, there's oh. no, going to be no good time to say that. <laughs> no, no, that was good, though. Sorry I slightly interrupted you. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of another shoe pub, but I can't. <laughs> Boots on the other foot now, isn't it? Um, <laughs> the case really progressed when Mary Heaster spoke to the prosecuting attorney, a man named John A. Preston. Preston had already heard of this weird tale, which had spread around the county like wildfire but he gave little credence to it. Now, this girl's mother was before him, sincere in her efforts to trap a murderer, firm in the belief that she had to tell the truth. Her brother-in-law also was there to add his suspicions gathered by the neighbours. For several hours, these three people conversed. When they concluded the meeting, attorney Preston started the wheels of justice moving towards one of the strangest and most fantastical murder trials ever held. First, he questioned Dr Knapp. So this is the doctor who pronounced her dead of natural causes. The kindly old physician admitted his verdict of heart failure as the cause of Mrs Shue's death might be wrong. She'd been ailing, but circumstances surrounding her death had given him some cause for suspicion. Both men agreed that an autopsy would prove whether or not Mrs Heaster's strange theory was true. If it was not, the examination would at least serve to relieve the aching heart of a saddened mother and throw undue suspicion from the shoulders of Mr Shue. Because you've got to think this story is now spreading. So if you're wrong, this person, you know, this, yeah. you could be accusing an innocent person. Absolutely, yeah. And in those days, the death penalty in Virginia did apply so you know the stakes are pretty high the next day the attorney Preston and Dr Knapp went to Livesley Mill informed Mr Shue of their plan and ordered him to accompany them over the mountain to his wife's grave Shue vigorously protested against such action but dared not refuse to accompany the little investigating party throughout the long journey he kept muttering I don't know what in the name of God they are taking her up for. They are not going to find anything. But he was wrong. Reaching the mountain grave, Preston ordered several neighbours to exhume the body of Mrs Shue. Such action, although commonplace today, had never been heard of in Greenbeer County, so it was only after considerable argument and threats of arrest that Preston succeeded in having the coffin raised from the grave and carried up the road to a local schoolhouse. Different times, isn't it? That is quite weird, the the notion of uh, getting the neighbours to dig it up. Yeah, because there, there was no kind of precedent, you know, I guess, you know, there's no, uh, there's no, uh, what do you call those teams? There's no silent witness team that can no. kind of go in and do this stuff. You just have to get some local people to do it. How long had she been in the ground for? Uh, I think a few weeks. This is a few weeks afterwards. Mr Shue was taken along to the little schoolhouse, then required to remain in the room while Dr Knapp performed his autopsy. First, the physician searched for poison but found no trace of it. He worked over the body for three days and nights seeking a cause of death. During that time, Shue, visibly nervous but maintaining his innocence, sat on a large packing box whittling it with his knife. On the third day, Dr Knapp was about to give up when he made a startling discovery that Mrs Heaster had predicted. Jones said, Dr Knapp was working around Mrs Shue's head. I could see Shue was getting more nervous. His whistling was not so good, it says. <laughs> this is testimony, but yeah. yeah. That's some low-grade whittling there, sir. Yeah, that's terrible whittling. You must be guilty. <laughs> Suddenly, the doctor turned to Mr Preston. They whispered together for a few minutes. Then Mr Preston turned to Shoe and said, Well, Shoe, we have found your wife's neck to be broken. Shoe's own head dropped. A change came over him that I can't explain but it certainly proved his guilt to me. Different times. So, um, again, three days to find a broken neck. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it must be harder than I think, then. Yeah, I guess it depends how it's broken, but yes, there is some testimony in a minute that does explain uh, why he didn't find it. But, you know, it could have just as easily been, um, 
incompetence, right? He may not have been the best doctor in the world, you know. Yeah. yeah, you've got to remember that back in those times, there weren't special kind of forensic doctors. He would have just been, doctors, yeah, he yeah. would have just been the local doctor, right? Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. But it's, I, I don't know, maybe I'm getting it wrong, but I f- would have thought that a broken neck would have been, um, you know, bones out of alignment. And you, you would think. Easy you? to see. You would think. Mrs. Shoe's body was placed once more in the little grave, its revenge complete. Shoe was placed under arrest by Sheriff Hill Nickel. The authorities started back with him to his home at Livesey Mill. This is interesting because they didn't immediately take him into custody. They took him back to his home first and he spent the night there. So it says here, arriving at the house the next day, Shoe seemed in brighter spirits and offered the party breakfast. When they accepted, he cooked the meal himself, then announced he was ready to go to jail. Um, sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? At Lewisburg, he was charged with the murder of Mrs Shoe and placed in the county jail without bond to await the June term of Greenbeer County Circuit Court for trial before Judge J.M. McHorter. If you're a judge, you've got to have lots of initials, haven't you? You, you, you definitely want a J.M. Something. The third. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Prosecuting attorney Preston and his assistant, Henry Gilmer, spent several months seeking additional evidence against Shoe, both fearing that the testimony of Mr. Heaster would not convict their prisoner. In the meantime, Shoe obtained the services of Dr. William Rucker and James P.D. Gardner to defend him. The case finally came before the court on June 30th, the little courtroom, still used today, was taxed to capacity by neighbours from both sides of Sewell Mountain. Some came to testify, other to hear Mrs Heaster's recital of her dreams. <laughs> this, I love this bit. Little, little difficulty was found in securing a jury. <laughs> <laughs> you would, would you? I'd love to be on of that. Of course, yeah. yes, yes. Within an hour, the trial was on. In his opening arguments, attorney Preston told the jury that the state's case against Shoe was entirely circumstantial, but that the evidence was such as he had never been presented in any court before. You would think, wouldn't you, with the testimony? Definitely, definitely, yeah. He stressed that the dream testimony to be presented would prove beyond doubt to be authentic and informed the jurors he could prove it. So here's where we get on to the doctor and his post-mortem. Dr Knapp was the first witness called. He told of conducting the post-mortem examination and finding Mrs Shoe's death had resulted from a broken neck, dislocated so perfectly that it escaped his observation for three days. I don't know if that's true medicine or a bit of bum covering, maybe. Yeah, I mean... The first thing he did was the poison test, which I guess makes sense. But, um, yeah, I don't, also don't know, like, um, whether strangulation causes a broken neck yeah. or whether... I mean, do we find out how he did it? Uh, well, yes, we do, from, from Zona Shoe herself. Right, OK. Her ghostly encounter. Yes, we do. At the same time, the physician pointed out that the break was of such nature Mrs Shoe could not have done it in a suicide attempt. So I guess that was very important to rule out as well. Mm -hmm. He further disclosed no evidence of how she had subjected herself to violence. The physician declared he made the usual examination when Mrs Shoe was found dead and pronounced her demise due to heart failure only after Shoe had refused to relinquish his wife's head, requesting him not to examine it. I mean, you would have think he might have... That might have raised a few suspicions, but he rolled with it at the don't, time. Don't look at the head. Why not? Yeah, nothing to see um, here. Oh, just, uh, just don't think you should. <laughs> don't need to. I've had a look, it's fine. So the, the young lad I mentioned earlier, Anderson Jones, testified to the defendant's repeated efforts to get him to go to the house and see if his wife wanted anything. Then Jones told of finding the body. Other witnesses stated Shoe was the only person seen about or known to have been in the house that morning before his wife was found dead. Others told he insisted in dressing Mrs Shoe 
and in doing so placed a high, stiff collar around her neck. Then he added a large veil, several times folding it and tied it in a large bow under the chin around her collar, around the collar. Still, other witnesses related how the victim's head appeared to be very loose at the neck and, when not supported, dropped from side to side. Ooh. Yeah. Other testified that in his conversation and conduct after Mrs. Shue's death, the defendant failed to show a proper appreciation of the loss he had sustained. One testified that when Shue had been summoned to the post-mortem and inquest over at Sewell, the defendant declared he would come back under arrest but they knew they could not prove him guilty of murder. All of this testimony was leading up to the expected dramatic appearance of Mrs Heaster. So everything so far was purely circumstantial, and if Shu denied it, there was an equal chance of his being freed of the crime. So never before in the history of American courts had a jury been asked to convict a defendant on testimony that resulted from a dream or a paranormal visitation. So when they get in Mrs Easter, yeah. she's going to testify dream versus visitation evidence. Correct, and she is going to maintain it was a visitation. Right, okay. So This is such a hard thing to tell a court, isn't it? It really is, and you can see why the prosecution, you know, played it the way that they did. So finally, the aged mother was called to the stand... And with an air of determination, she told how she had been unsatisfied about the case of her daughter's death and how she had prayed that Mrs Shue might return from her grave and solve the mystery. She told of the daughter's four separate visits to her little bedroom and how the girl described her own death at the hands of a scheming and brutal husband. This is the bit where it kind of... the the. Obviously, the psychology of the case in terms of the defence and prosecution comes in because attorney Preston, who was the prosecutor, knew that undue elaboration on Mrs Hester's dreams would make them far too fantastical for a jury to believe. So he merely touched upon them quite lightly with his star witness. Right. So he further realised defence attorneys would try and break down this startling testimony then his case would be won, just as Mrs Heaster had won him over from his efforts to break her story down as one of vivid imagination. So in his first interviews with Mrs Heaster, he kind of went at it and went, look, this is ridiculous. And within the space of an hour, he she'd convinced him. So rather than doing that himself, he tread lightly and then hoped that the defence would go down that route which is a really clever way of doing it right mm, mm. so dr rucker the defense counsel lost no time in getting at the dreams unaware of their full significance he endeavored to blast them out of the courtroom as the start of his defense At this point the testimony that's found in the lewisburg court records can better appreciate the story so important was it considered that thomas h dennis the editor of the green beer independent at lewisburg printed the entire question-and-answer testimony, something rarely done by newspapers before the present decade. Wow. So this is going into depths of what it is she saw. Yeah. I mean, they literally printed the testimony between she's defence lawyer and Mrs Heaster in full in the newspaper. That's, that is incredible. And we're, uh, we're going to get on to that because we're going to recreate it in full in a second okay cool um so let yeah let's go into that testimony because it is fascinating and it's amazing to think this dialogue played out in a real courtroom in front of a real jury um i'm going to be reading as shoes defense attorney mr rucker and i'd like to thank hannah who's joined us who's going to read the part of mrs heaster now remember these are actual exchanges from the real trial Mr. Rucker starts proceedings by saying, Mrs. Heaster, did you not have a dream that aroused your suspicions to lead you to have the body exhumed? I had no dream, for I was fully awake as I am in this moment. And did you not have a dream or vision that led you to have the body disinterred? 
Well, I was not satisfied that my daughter came to her death from natural causes. So I prayed that it might be revealed to me how she died. After about an hour spent in prayer, I turned over and there stood my daughter. I put my hand out to feel the coffin, but it was not there. She seemed to hesitate to speak to me and then departed. The next night, after I prayed again, the manner of her death might be shown. She appeared and talked more freely, giving me to understand that I should be acquainted with the whole matter. The third night she appeared again and disclosed more to me. And on the fourth night she returned and told me about all the difficulty, how it occurred and how it was brought about. So Mrs Hester claimed her daughter said the following words. He came to me that night from the shop and seemed angry. I told him supper was ready and he began to chide me because I'd prepared no meat. I replied there was plenty. Bread, butter, applesauce, preserves and other things that made a good supper. He flew into a rage, got up and came towards me. When I raised up, he seized each side of my head with his hands and by a sudden wrench dislocated my neck. Mrs Hester continued with the remainder of her testimony. Then my daughter went on to describe the home where she lived and the surroundings in the neighbourhood, so it was fixed in my mind as reality. When I later described it for people living near there, they told me that they could have not been more accurate themselves. She told me I could look back of Aunt Martha Jones in the meadow, a rocky place, that I could look in the cellar behind the loose plank and see. Her house was a square log house, hewed right up onto the square. She said for me to look at the right-hand side of the door as you go in, and the right-hand corner. I saw the place exactly as she'd told me, and I saw blood there as she told me. Now, Mrs Heaster, this sad affair was particularly impressed upon your mind, and there was not a moment during your waking hours that you did not dwell upon it. No, sir, and there is not yet either. And this was not a dream founded upon your distressed condition of mind? No, sir. It was not a dream. I was as wide awake as I ever was. Then if not a dream or dreams, what do you call it? I prayed to the Lord that she might come back and tell me what happened. I prayed that she might come herself and tell on him. Do you think you actually saw your daughter in flesh and blood? Yes, sir, I do. I told them the very dress she was wearing when she was murdered. And when she was about to leave the room, she turned her head completely around and looked at me, like she wanted me to know all about it. The next time she returned, she told me all about it. The first time she came, it seemed as if she did not want to tell me as much afterwards. The last night she came, she told me she had done everything she could. And I'm satisfied that she did all that too. Now, Mrs Heaster, don't you know these visions, as you term or describe them, were nothing more or less than four dreams founded upon your distress? No, I do not know it. The Lord sent her to me to tell it. I was the only friend she knew and could tell and put any confidence in. I was the nearest one to her. Shu gave me a ring. He pretended she wanted me to have it. But I do not know what dead woman he might have taken it off of. I wanted my daughter's own ring, but he would not let me have it. Mrs Heaster, are you positively sure that these were not four dreams? Yes, sir. They were not dreams. I do not dream when I am wide awake, to be sure. And I know I saw her, right there, before me. Are you not considerably superstitious? No, sir, I am not. I was never that way before, and I am not now. 
Do you believe in the scripture? Yes, sir. I have no reason not to believe in them. And do you believe the scripture contains the words of God and his son? Yes, sir. I do. Do you not believe in it? Hmm. Now, I would like, if I could, to get you to say that these were four dreams and not visions or appearances of your daughter in flesh and blood. If I'm going to say that, I'm going to lie. Then you insist your daughter actually appeared in flesh and blood before you on four different occasions? Yes, sir. Did she not have any other conversations with you other than the matter of her death? Yes, sir. Some other little things. Some things I have forgotten. Just a few words. I just wanted the particulars about her death. And I got them. And when she came, did you touch her? Yes, sir. I got on my elbows and reached out a little further, as I wanted to see if the people came in their coffins. I leaned up and made a light. I wanted to see if there was a coffin, but there was not. She was just as she was when she left this world. It was just after I'd gone to bed. I wanted her to come and talk to me. And she did. This was before the inquest, and I told my neighbours. They said that she was exactly as I told them she was. Had you ever seen the premises where your daughter lived before these visits? No, sir, I had not. But I found them exactly as she told me they were, and I never laid my eyes on after her death. She told me all about this before I knew anything about the building at all. How long was it after you had these interviews with your daughter until you did see the buildings? It must have been a month or more after the examination. You said your daughter told you that down by the fence in a rocky place you would find something. She said for me to look there. She didn't say I would find anything, just for me to look there. Did she tell you what to look for? No, sir, she did not. I was so glad to see her I forgot to ask. And have you examined the place since? Yes, sir. We looked at the fence a little, but didn't find anything. That's amazing. The prosecution uh, played a blinder. They really did, didn't they? The, um, the, the way that they force her into... Well, no, she forces them into confirming that she's a sane, rational, normal person um, and she'd be lying if she said it was a dream. Yeah, that's a beautiful line, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I also... I was also amazed at uh, my understanding is they didn't know she'd had a premonition about how the daughter was killed, I don't think. And, you know, because those questionings of, well, you must have visited the house. And she yeah. was like, no I've, no, I've never visited it before. Yeah, yeah. And that's what brings... So the jury must have been slightly convinced by that evidence about the building because that is quite startling. Yeah, and quite detailed, isn't it? Yeah. And there is another bit, um, yeah, like you said, that they played a blinder. Her calmness and honesty did come across from the, the transcript. Yeah. <clears throat> there is a bit in there where she talks about her daughter turning her head completely round as she left. I've seen some artist impressions of this which seem to, you know, show that as almost, almost exorcist-like. The, the head is completely turned around. But to demonstrate the, the break. Yes, but I, I I don't know if that's true or it was just a... It could have just been a figure of speech, couldn't it, yeah, rather, yeah. rather than yeah. literally. But some people have taken that literally. Not sure whether that's true. Now, the accused, Mr Shoe, spent nearly an entire day on the witness stand seeking to build a defence for himself. He talked at great length and was very minute and particular in describing unimportant events, but denied practically everything testified to by the other witnesses. He entered a positive denial of the charges against him, terming the prosecution spite work, he called it. <laughs> Gosh. In closing, he vehemently protested his innocence, calling on God to witness. 
Though admitting he had served a term in the penitentiary, penitentiary, he declared he loved his late wife dearly and appealed to members of the jury to look into his eyes and then say if he was guilty. <laughs> Unfortunately, that didn't work out for him. Mm-hmm. But this man's testimony and his desperate efforts failed to sway the jury, but it made a most unfavourable impression. So that tactic didn't work either. Right, they turned against him. So great did the state's case appear against him that Mr Dennis, editor of the Green Beer Independent, wrote in the paper, there is no middle ground for a jury to take. The verdict, inevitably, must be for murder in the first degree or for an acquittal. After lengthy arguments of the evidence by counsel for both state and defendant, Shoe's case was given to the jury. This body solemnly filed from the room to perform their duty. This is amazing. Returning in an hour with a verdict of murder in the first degree. So they were quick and unanimous. Quick and unanimous. However, uh, they did recommend that uh, Shu get life imprisonment rather than the death penalty. Because he'd done it in anger or...? I don't know. It doesn't say... I began to wonder if there may I, I don't know this is pure speculation but you can imagine a jury is like yeah we should hang him and if there was anyone going yeah but hold on we are just convicting him on either the word of a dream or not just but primarily mm. on the mm. word of a dream or a paranormal apparition yeah do we really want him to be sentenced to death for that yeah 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 after the verdict had been announced, Mr Dennis again wrote in his paper, Taking the verdict of a jury as ascertaining the truth, we must conclude that Shoes deliberately broke his wife's neck, probably with his strong hands and with no more motive than to be rid of her so that he might get another one more to his liking. Who cooked meat, presumably. Yeah. The 12-man jury and many spectators in the courtroom did not see eye to eye in regards to the proper verdict. Many persons not connected with the trial expressing the opinion that the death penalty should have been imposed. This is... it gets even weirder now. Rumours of mob violence grew. Sentiment crystallised. On the Sunday following Shoe's conviction, a, sport, a small mob gathered at Meadow Bluff campgrounds to take the prisoner from his cell in the county jail and hang him. Shoe's fate, the mob decreed, should be the same he had judged and carried out for his innocent wife, death by a broken neck. <sighs> at 10 o'clock, they gathered at their rendezvous eight miles from Lewisburg, one man, however, decided his neighbours were making a terrible mistake. He was a man called George M. Harrah. Hearing of the plan, Harrah mounted his horse and hurried to the house of Sheriff Nicol at Meadow Bluff. Both men started for Lewisburg to protect the prisoner, but to reach there they had to pass by the campgrounds. Somebody in the mob recognised the sheriff as he sped down the road past the grounds on his horse. Several would-be lynchers gave chase, they captured the two men at the point of pistols. <laughs> Sheriff Nicol drew his gun and was about to fire despite overwhelming odds when he recognised his assailant. Deciding to kill the gunman, even at the cost of his own life, the sheriff tried moral persuasion. Mob leaders went with him to a nearby home of D.A. Dwyer. There, after a considerable argument, Sheriff Nicol won the point. The mob disbanded giving him the new stout rope which they had planned to carry out the hanging of Shoe. What a guy! <laughs> well, what a really brave, right? Yeah. Two days elapsed before Shoe was removed to Moundsville Penitentiary to serve the remainder of his life. He died there eight years later. A man who had been charged and convicted of murder due to the testimony of the ghost of his wife. What a great story. You couldn't write that better. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And what year did he die? Well, the story first appeared in 1910. The date of the incident seems a bit vague, but I, um, I would imagine around 
1910 or just before because I think that's probably where they could publish the full story with the account of you would want you'd want to publish that's probably why there was a delay because you would want to publish it with a conclusion to the case that he'd suffered his his end his final end I would think so uh, yeah I would assume in the early 1900s and the murder took place in the late 1900s right 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 okay that makes sense well um that's there's incredible bravery from so many other people who were involved in that case the mother particularly i think yeah the mother coming forward and knowing that she would be ridiculed now she said in her testimony it wasn't like she was some you know big believer in the paranormal or the spiritual um no so to come forward and say that to convince the prosecutor I mean, how brave is that? You know what I mean? Who's, you know, one of the best, you know, legal minds in the country who initially when she arrived was like, oh, really? And then by the end of what, an hour or two of talking to her was like, no, you're right. The bravery of exhuming the body, which just wasn't done at that time, even to the protest of people there. No, no, he could so easily have got away with that. Yeah, and then the the sheriff... um, defending or not wanting uh mob rule to to decide the outcome final outcome of shoe himself and the sheriff using his bravery against odds to stop that happening as well it's an incredible story isn't it it really is wonderful really wonderful and um uh beautifully summarized and told um I particularly like the acting. Yes. <laughs> That's the first time we've had acting on the show. I know, I know, I know. Let's know what you think, whether we should do more of that. I mean, we went down that road because otherwise we would have had, one of us would have had to read as Mrs. Heaster. And, and I'm not sure our old woman impression no. would have been very good, right? No, no, I'd, I'd end up doing like something from the fast show yeah. and I wouldn't do it justice. You can see why my initial idea was to feature a number of these cases and I just got stuck on this one because it's so good. It really is. It's compelling. You sort of like, so there are other cases where ghosts are given testimony. Yeah, I, well, I think we'll come back to some more. So I, I'm thinking what we could do is this almost like a paranormal true, a paranormal true crime section so i think yeah. we'll do more of these stories under the kind of paranormal true crime heading i love it yeah i particularly enjoy the um dichotomy of so you're saying that a ghost of your daughter came back yep that seems pretty unusual but you do believe in a uh, yeah. giant supernatural <laughs> entity that created everything right yep but seeing your daughter hmm. uh, yeah yeah <laughs> i guess his purpose there was trying to instill in the jury that somehow this kind of testimony was almost satanic or yeah. anti, anti-God, anti anti-religion, I right? could see what he was getting at there. Yeah, it didn't land, though, did it? No. No. Good honour. Yeah. Well, that was amazing. Thank you very much. Good research. Yes. It, uh, yeah, well, I, I've got to thank uh, the West Virginia magazine. that I, That was the best summary I came across because the amount of detail that they went into and using the original court records and the original paper interviews at the time rather than some of the embellishment that has come in later versions of the story. I thought, let's go back to as original a source as I could find. Lovely. Oh, I love it. Thank you. Good. Um should we do a bit of? Uh, I I'm not sure we got anything on the Sherlock Holmes TQM no, Tolkien project. Been a pretty quiet nothing. week. Yeah, um, this sounds odd. I don't. I, I almost didn't want to say it, but it, it's either kind of shows the psychological power of the Tolpa or the paranormal power. Nothing happened, but I was in the garden <laughs> a couple of days ago, and for no reason, I just went. Oh, I think Sherlock's about. I wasn't thinking about him. I just, I just had this weird feeling. It was a really calming feeling. I can only, I, and I'm not, I'm not what you know me. I'm not one for that kind of thing. No. But it felt like there was a presence of Sherlock there. Nothing more than that. Nothing weird happened. There was no activity. It was just a little feeling I had. It was a really lovely, 
nice calming feeling. I almost said in my own head, oh, Sherlock's here. Which that is interesting. It's weird, isn't it? And I don't know if that's because it has been quiet this week and subconsciously my brain was wanting to have some Sherlock interaction or or it was something more. But I thought I'd share. It was it was nothing more than that. But no it, tobacco scent. No tobacco scent. Nothing yeah. like that. But it was just a real calming feeling of uh, almost surreally going, oh, Sherlock's here. Or maybe he was letting you know. Yeah. That he didn't want to be missed out of this week's segment. Yeah, well, it's a murder case, right? He would have loved this. Oh my he? god, it is so Sherlockian. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Keep, do do keep up. Like like we said before, we're we'll uh, we won't go into big detail unless something comes up. But keep letting us know if you do have any weird Sherlock Holmes activity in our uh, uh, mission to make Sherlock real. Um, so let us know either on facebook or twitter at tqm podcast um yeah and uh yes please if you do want to support us uh with equipment with uh books with trips out go to our patreon uh which is patreon.com forward slash tqm pods uh if you fancy supporting us we'd really appreciate it if you do really love it you become a mechanics assistant (laughs) <laughs> Which doesn't sound very glamorous, yeah. but it is more glamorous than you imagine. Yeah, there may be an official qualification after a while at the end period. And as Ben said, we are we will be adding some exclusive Patreon stuff. We're uh, we're just debating what that's going to be. Uh, what would be great, actually, uh, either from people who've already joined the Patreon program or or anyone on social media, what kind of thing would you want from us? Uh, if you were, a, if you were and or are a Patreon, what what would make you happy that we can exclusively give you? So uh, any thoughts would be great on that as well. Helps us decide what to do. Keep it realistic. It can't be special edition Nikes or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Although I like the idea of that. That's quite good, isn't it? Yeah. In our in our colours, red and blue. Yeah, or, or maybe Adidas would be better because we could have like T Q M on each of the stripes. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I tell you what, it's got very uh, paranormal. There's suddenly that thunder has come right overhead. It won't appear on the mics, but there is a storm raging right above us. Yeah, we've had a lot of rain and kind of thunder. It made the story even more um, spooky for us. I'm not sure if you'll hear it. I can feel the static in the air. Yeah, cool. That's that's just Sherlock. Yeah, Um, that's Phil Collins, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you uh, for listening. We really appreciate you being with us. Um, If you're not going to Patreon, if you could like... Uh, subscribe leave a review all that stuff really helps as well so uh, we do really appreciate you listening uh, and being with us it's really great really great lovely a big hug to you all on this stormy day yes and uh, see you next week bye the quantum mechanics.